Well, good morning again. Um, I am excited to be able to teach this morning. Uh, it is always a joy to get to preach God's word to you guys. Uh, I would love to tell you happy Halloween. However, like a good church historian, I am choosing to remind you that if Martin Luther had not helped ignite the Protestant Reformation a little over 500 years ago on this day, uh, most of us would probably be Catholic and many of us would probably have some funny looking haircuts because we were monks. Some of you still have funny looking haircuts to be clear. Uh, I spent a few days really excited to preach uh, the end of chapter 29 through the f first half of uh, chapter 30 until Ryan came into my office and told me it wasn't the passage that I was supposed to be preaching. And so there I was on Wednesday trying to figure out what I could make out of a story of a guy giving some shepherds some bad advice and then marrying his two cousins. As I've gone about my preparation for this message, however, I've realized that when we put this story in the bigger context of what's happening in the book of Genesis, and then also what's happening in the entire Bible, that it's really a, a rather fascinating story. It's like a good M. Night Shyamalan movie or something. It's based on the idea of reversal. It's fueled by irony. It features the kind of poetic justice that you could only see happening in some book you were assigned in high school, like The Great Gatsby or The Count of Monte Cristo or something else that you probably didn't read. We've been in the book of Genesis for a while now. In fact, a year ago, I remember teaching on uh, the story of Noah. And in that, in that sermon, I shared a series of principles to keep in mind whenever we come to these Old Testament stories. And I think it bears repeating one of them now. When we read the Old Testament, it's important to remember that the whole Bible tells one single story of God delivering his people from the reign of sin. It's easy to reduce these stories to studies of a particular historical figure. Rather than understanding that this is our history, we tend to treat the Old Testament like it's some kind of Discovery Channel documentary something that teaches us just about ancient Jewish customs and culture. And while I do believe that the book of Genesis is historically accurate, I also believe that God wrote these stories down for us, for his church, that there's something more important happening than a mere history lesson whenever we gather together to look at the book of Genesis. Genesis records a specific history of a specific people. It was recorded to reveal the character of God and the way that he works in and through his world. And because we know that he is the perfect image of the invisible God, Genesis is a story leading to Christ. What I'm trying to get at is that we are right to seek deeper spiritual truths in the Old Testament because these stories were recorded for us to interpret. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 10 and also in Galatians 4. He says that the Old Testament events happened to them as types, and they were written down for our instruction. As one Old Testament professor said in a book that I enjoyed, uh, Scripture's literal figures disclose theological realities. You could kind of say it this way, the literal reveals the theological. That these events really did happen but that they were, they were orchestrated by God 
in a way that's instructive for his church. Now, we ended up having some printer issues before I could get an outline to you. Uh, However, those are the two major categories I want you to keep in mind as we look at this text this morning. Literal, theological. So far in the book of Genesis, we've seen how God's people have tried and ultimately failed on their own to maintain the promise of a coming Savior. That promised seed whose heel would be bruised but would strike the serpent's head, as we saw in Genesis 3. In chapters 1 through 11, we saw the stories of Adam, Seth, Noah, and all the nations descended from them as they failed to properly orient their heart towards the God of the promise. Then in chapters 12 to 23, we mostly focused on Abraham. We saw how God made a covenant to save the world through his offspring, promising to make him a great nation. But Abraham never fully obtains that promise in his lifetime. Then, so far in chapters 24 to 27, we've seen his son Isaac. And though this lineage continues, so does their sinful inability to measure up to God's standard. If you'll remember what's happened with Jacob so far, he's deceived Isaac into giving him the blessing that rightfully belonged to his older brother. Mimicking Esau taking advantage of his father's poor vision, he steals the firstborn's blessing. He flees to find his uncle, Laban, at the request of his father, presumably because of his brother's plot to kill him. Then if you'll remember what Ryan taught on last week, Jacob has been given a dream, where God reminds him of the promise that was given to Abraham, except this time he reveals it directly to Jacob. His offspring would be a great nation, and he would be given a promised land. If you haven't caught on to this yet, in the back of everyone's mind is this original promise made to Abraham. With every passing generation, Abraham's offspring anticipates their Savior. And even now, if we were just reading this through as a story, we would probably think there wasn't that much left to go. After all, Jacob's name means held by the heel— And he's now been given a vision of uh, promise that his people would become a great nation and that he would inherit the land that he was asleep on. In case you don't realize this, the Bible is a very large book. There's a lot more of the story to go. So today we're going to look at Genesis 29. And we're going to break it down by looking at three specific topics that play a role in this story. We're going to look at this text through the lenses of sheep, wells, and marriage. Sheep, wells, and marriage. And I know some of those are like words that we don't use often, but they will become more comfortable throughout the sermon as we read the story, because that's really what this is about. Look at the text with me. Starting in verse 1. Jacob resumed his journey and went to the eastern country. He looked and saw a well in a field. Three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it because the sheep were watered from this well. But a large stone covered the opening of the well. The shepherds would roll the stone from the opening of the well and water the sheep when all the flocks were gathered there. Then they would return the stone to its place over the well's opening. Jacob asked the men at the well, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they answered. Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Jacob asked them. They answered, We know him. Is he well? Jacob asked. Yes, they said, and here is his daughter Rachel coming with his sheep. Then Jacob said, Look, it is still broad daylight. It's not time for the animals to be gathered. 
water the flock, and then go out and let them graze. But they replied, we can't until all the flocks have been gathered, and the stone is rolled from the well's opening. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. As soon as Jacob saw his uncle Laban's daughter Rachel with her sheep, he went up and rolled the stone from the opening and watered his uncle Laban's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept loudly. He told Rachel that he was her father's relative, Rebekah's son. She ran and told her father. Now, at the beginning of our story, we are told that Jacob went to the eastern country and that he looked and saw a well in a field. That there's three flocks lying beside a well because that's the well from which these sheep were watered. We're nearly transported to the scene, aren't we? Genesis actually puts us in Jacob's shoes to see the story unfold from his point of view. We see open country, an uncultivated land that was probably better for letting cattle graze on it than it was for growing crops. And after making small talk, Jacob chides the shepherds for not having watered their sheep yet. We don't really know why he does this. It seems a little rude to me to stumble upon a group of shepherds and then try to tell them that they are doing their job incorrectly, especially whenever you're coming trying to find uh, some shelter and some home running away from your murderous brother. Some, some of your Bibles may have a little footnote in verse 1 saying that this literally reads, Jacob picked up his feet. It's the only time the Bible says this phrase, and it most likely clues us into the idea that as Jacob went to Haran, he carried some confidence with him. After all, he had just had this great dream where God appeared and made a mighty promise to him. He was probably eager to get to his uncle's house because he wanted to obey his father's command to go there. So Jacob prompts the shepherds to go ahead and water the flocks so that they could graze in the pasture until it was time for them to be gathered. Look, it is still broad daylight. It's not time for the animals to be gathered. Water the flock, then go out and let them graze. Although a few flocks of sheep were already at the well, the shepherds refused to move the large stone covering it. Back then, digging a well wasn't as simple of a task as it is for us today. Several shepherds probably came from a wide region to use this well, so they had invented a system. We can assume it was probably something like first come, first served, and they really only wanted to have to open the stone once because it was so big, it was probably a, a communal effort. Work smarter, not harder, right? So until all the sheep were gathered together, the stone could not be rolled away from the mouth of the well. Annoyed with Jacob's intrusion and his small talk about his uncle, the shepherds are relieved to see that Rachel is finally within eyesight. They can pawn him off on her. And this is where the story gets rather interesting. Verse 10 tells us that Jacob moves this large stone all by himself. Now, I'm assuming that this means Jacob probably did CrossFit or whatever the ancient equivalent was because this thing was so big that the shepherds refused to move it multiple times, and yet he does it on his own. Then he does the first thing that we all do whenever we see our cousins. He weeps and he kisses her. I'm kidding. Please don't kiss your cousins. It's weird. There is no need to see this kiss as a moment of 
uh, attraction to Rachel for Jacob, however. It probably wasn't a romantic gesture, as weird as it may seem to us. Uh, Think of everything he has been through. He's traveled a long way, trying to find the shelter of his extended family. They didn't have cell phones, so he probably felt pretty relieved that he actually found a family member in a distant land. And it's evident that whatever affection he's trying to show is still tied to that family relationship. Because before he kisses her, the first thing he does is water his uncle's sheep. Jacob was most likely overwhelmed with emotion. Uh, we, we can also conclude this by the way that the author writes from his point of view. It's clear that this is a very deeply emotional and personal story for him. Now I want to pause at this point in the story and move away from the sheep, start talking about wells a little bit. Because I think that there's a really important pattern that helps us sort of unlock some of the importance of this story. Because otherwise it's, it's pretty simple, right? You come to a well, you meet a woman, you end up getting married to her, and then you're tricked by your uncle. It's happened to the best of us, I guess. Um, now I want to pause at this point uh, to talk about this. It's a little bit of a diversion from the narrative, but it's must-know information. Whenever we look at Jewish literature uh, over the centuries, there's two major themes that end up surrounding this image of wells. The first is marriage, and the second is the revelation of truth or the opening of the eyes. So first, there are several marriage-related scenes that take place at wells. In ancient times, women would go out and get water from the wells in the evening as it was a bit cooler than usual. Uh, The dating scene has indeed changed. If you look out back, I've dug several wells trying to get a nice single lady getting water for her family, but I haven't found one yet. I'll keep you guys posted. I hope you don't mind the wells. According to Jewish tradition, it's said that Abraham met Keturah, who he married after Sarah passed away at a well. And though we don't have a biblical reference for that kind of passed down legend, we do for a couple others. In Genesis 24, one of Abraham's servants leads 10 camels to the city, to the city's well, excuse me, and meets Rebekah there, taking her to Isaac after that. Later, in Exodus 2, Moses meets his wife at a well, and after watering her father's flock for her, she is given to Moses in marriage, strikingly similar to what happens to Jacob. Of course, as we've seen today, Jacob meets Rachel at a well. And though he didn't immediately probably want to marry her, he does end up quickly falling in love with her and does end up becoming her husband. Jacob likely knew the role that Wells had played in his family history. Imagine imagine you're Jacob, right? You've been given the promise of prosperity. You've been more or less told that you are the one who is carrying on this promise through the generations. That you're going to have numerous offspring. And then what do you know? You instantly meet a woman at the very same place that your grandfather and father both met their wives. You would only assume this was the hand of God leading you to this woman to help you bear this offspring, right? So on the one hand, we have this imagery of wells being tied to women in marriage. And then on the other hand, we have uh, this imagery of wells being tied to revelation of truth. In large part, this, I think, tradition started because the Hebrew word for eyes uh, is sometimes also translated as wells. Um, We saw this, uh, we saw some wordplay on this a couple chapters ago in Genesis 21. Uh, If you'll remember, God opens Hagar's eyes, uh, and the first thing that she beholds is a well. 
Uh, and that was supposed to symbolize the promise of God's providence over uh, her family and her household. So this is a common thing that we'll see throughout different Jewish texts and even in Scripture. Uh, in Proverbs 5, warning of adultery and trying to convince his reader to follow the truth, Solomon says this, Drink water from your own cistern, water flowing from your own well. Should your springs flow in the streets, streams in the public squares? They should be for you alone and not for you to share with strangers. Let your fountain be blessed and take pleasure in the wife of your youth. For a man's ways are before the Lord's eyes, and he considers all his paths. In that Proverbs text, uh, all of those words like cistern, well, fountain, and the word for eyes are all different words that are frequently translated in other contexts to talk about wells. And I don't say all this to try to confuse you or try to talk about how cool it is to talk about Hebrew. Uh, instead, I'm trying to show you that I'm not making this up, uh, that this takes place at a well for a reason, that wells played a significant role in Jewish literature, and so it's no mere coincidence that Jacob would meet Rachel at a well in our story today. The symbolism of that emerges of Jacob meeting Rachel at a well is significant because it follows in the footsteps of Abraham and Isaac, showing how the promise is passed down through him. It serves as a kind of road sign to Jacob that he is following the hand of God in finding a spouse at a well, that he has opened his eyes to the truth. Now, I know that was a bit of a diversion from where the story was going, so let's make sure you're still with me. The shepherds have, at this point, delayed rolling the stone away and watering the sheep until all of the flocks were gathered, and this is the way that Jacob earns the favor of Rachel. He waters her father's flock. In doing this, he ends up meeting the one with whom he would continue this promised line, the promise of faithful offspring and land inheritance. Look at what happens next, starting in verse 13. When Laban heard the news about his sister's son Jacob, he ran to meet him, hugged him, and kissed him. Then he took him to his house, and Jacob told him all that had happened. Laban said to him, Yes, you are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him a month. Laban said to him, Just because you're my relative, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The older was named Leah, and the younger named Rachel. Leah had tender eyes, but Rachel was shapely and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel, so he answered Laban, I'll work for you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban replied, better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay with me. So Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, and they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, since my time is complete, give me my wife so I can sleep with her. So Laban invited all the men of the place and sponsored a feast. That evening, Laban took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and he slept with her. And Laban gave his slave Zilpah to his daughter Leah as her slave. When morning came, there was Leah. So he said to Laban, what have you done to me? Wasn't it for Rachel that I worked for you? Why have you deceived me? In its time, servanthood in exchange for a daughter's hand in marriage wasn't exactly uncommon. And even though it's weird to us today, there were fewer social faux pas about marrying within the family. So, having worked for his uncle for seven years, Jacob cuts right to the chase. 
He wants a wife, and he loves Rachel. Like today, fathers often celebrated their daughters' marriages in grandiose ways, feasts and gifts. Unlike today, one of those gifts that fathers often gave was a servant for the newlyweds household. So Laban gives his daughter one of his servants to seal the deal, but there's a hiccup. They spend the wedding night together, and as morning arrives, Jacob sees he has been deceived. He consummates the marriage to the sister of the one he intended to marry. There's your M. Night Shyamalan twist, Hollywood. We can't help but notice the rich irony here, right? He uses the exact same deception that Jacob used against his brother to rob him of his blessing. In fact, the similarities are uncanny. Leah is described as having uh, soft or tender eyes compared to Rachel, and it was Isaac's poor eyesight that enabled Jacob to deceive him into thinking that he was Esau. Jacob is visibly upset, and understandably so, but it is admittedly comedic to us to be able to think about his lack of self-awareness in this moment. He fails to see how he had betrayed his own brother, but is angry at his uncle for having betrayed him. But, blinded by his love for Rachel, he agrees to work seven more years to be given her hand, having loved her more than Leah. And by the end of our text, Jacob has now given up 14 years of service of his life for the right to marry his love, Rachel. Now, you would think that what would probably happen next would be some kind of separation or divorce from Leah, right? After all, he didn't want to marry her. He doesn't love her. However, in verse 31, we encounter something that would have prevented this. When the Lord saw that Leah was neglected, he opened her womb, but Rachel was unable to conceive. How trapped Jacob must have felt. He was supposed to be the one held by the heel, the fulfillment of the promise, the one through whom Abraham's covenant would continue. His only hope for maintaining the promise of offspring and inheritance would be to have children with his wrongful and unloved wife because the wife that he actually loves was barren. Put yourself in Jacob's shoes. You've successfully tricked your father into giving you the blessing that belonged to your older brother. You've made the long journey all the way to the land of the east, avoiding your brother's vengeful wrath the whole way. With all the strength you could muster, you roll away a stone over you roll a stone away over the mouth of a well. A stone large enough that it probably took multiple people and they only wanted to do it once. You meet your uncle's daughter and fall in love with her and you end up working 14 years of your life to try to marry her. And then, in one single moment, it comes crashing down. You have to wonder, did he think the promise had failed? Had God forgotten us? After all, it wasn't that long ago that God had said, your offspring will be like the dust of the earth and will spread out towards the west, east, north, and south, and that all peoples on the earth will be blessed through them. How could his offspring grow to be so numerous if the love of his life was barren? Of course, we know now that the promise had not failed. God hadn't forgotten Jacob, and he didn't end the story here. In fact, as we'll see in future sermons on Genesis, that Jacob will go on to become the father to 12 sons, sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel, through whom the promised Savior would indeed come. 
Through the wombs of Rachel, Leah, Zilpah, and Bilhah, God calls out a people to serve him. But those are stories for another day. You would want to kill me if I tried to teach all of that right now. Further down the line, Jacob is used as a reference by the prophets. Because he is the father to all of Israel, and the one who has received the blessing, they often use his name as a catch-all for several different groups of people, either a faithful remnant of Israelites who have remained obedient to God, or the nation of Israel as a whole. In Amos, God's wrath burns against Israel, but God spares the house of Jacob. In Obadiah, the houses of Jacob and Joseph are called fire that would consume the house of Edom with no survivor in the house of Esau. In Micah, the rebellion of Jacob brings judgment against the people of the earth. The Lord, through his prophet, asks, what is the rebellion of Jacob? And his answer? Samaria, a city prophesied to become a place where carved images are beaten to pieces, where wages are burned with fire, a place that will one day return to the wages of a prostitute that it sought as a city. Whenever we look at what Jacob becomes throughout the rest of the Old Testament, not necessarily in a literal sense, right? Obviously, Jacob the man dies. But whenever we look at what his legacy is, and we put all these things together, I think that a scene from Jesus' life makes a lot more sense of Jacob's story, especially the story today. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 4. This is a passage that will be familiar to many of us, um, but how, hopefully this is maybe a reading that you haven't heard of it before. Beginning in verse 4. He, that is Jesus, had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep, so where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob. Are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. So Jesus passes through Samaria and takes a breather by a well. Now, in case you've already forgotten, in Micah, uh, Samaria is a city with a poor reputation. In fact, it is called the rebellion of Jacob, the consequences of Jacob's, the house of Jacob's sins. He's approached by a Samaritan woman, a cultural nobody, and he asks her for a drink. She's taken aback, wondering what a Jewish man would ever be doing asking a Samaritan woman for a drink midday. 
He turns the tables on her and offers her access to living water that will cause her to never thirst again. And like many of those that we see Jesus come into contact with, she can't quite understand what he's getting after. Water that quenches all thirst? We're given her background later in the story when Jesus calls her out in a lie. She tries to avoid her sin, saying she has no husband, when she, in fact, has had five husbands. And she's now with a man who is not her husband. Divided by their cultural differences, she tells Jesus that although her people worshipped there, Jesus or Jews worshipped elsewhere. Which really strikes me as a really polite way to just say, you've called me out on my sin, now scram. Jesus answers her, an hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman replies that she knows the Messiah will soon be on the way and explain all things. And then Jesus answers her with a remarkable response that likely rang hollow to her Samaritan ears. I am the one talking to you. In this moment, Jesus makes his true identity known. He is God in flesh, come to save the world. Jesus himself is the living water of Jacob's well, the one who would unite in his person the descendants of Rachel and Leah, the one who would fulfill the promise made to Abraham all those years ago, perfectly and without complication. Jesus is the key that unlocks the story of Jacob and Rachel and Leah. In fact, this scene, in the same way that we've seen Jacob at the well, is really a story about wells, sheep, and marriage. In John 3, John the Baptist has announced that the bridegroom has arrived in Jesus. Like Jacob, in Haran, Jesus enters into Samaria as a stranger. He stops at noon to take a rest beside a well, the same exact time that Jacob told the shepherds that they needed to water the flocks. And what do you know? He stops at the place he stops at is none other than the very well dug by Jacob all those millennia ago. Jesus is preparing to encounter his bride, not the woman at the well. Instead, it's a prelude to the formation of the church, the people of God, the bride that would be built out of his body, out of this living water. At long last, the promise of Abraham has been fulfilled. The line of Jacob has come to fruition. Theologian John Baer sums it up uh, this way. Jesus is thus revealed to be more than a prophet, a Messiah, and even Jacob. The original supplanter has been supplanted. Christ is, rather, the very presence of God himself, the one who revealed his name to Moses. And as such, the salvation he brings is not for the Jews or Samaritans only, for he is, as the Samaritans from the city conclude, the Savior of the whole world. Whereas Jacob recognized the house of God, his descendants, the Samaritans, recognized Jesus as the Savior of the world and are so invited into the relationship with God as the Father of Jesus, in which ancestral sites of worship are replaced by the one greater than Jacob and his well, that is, by the one who sits upon and offers living waters." You see, in Genesis 29, Jacob went to the well to seek the promise. 
hoping that finding a wife through his own strength would allow him to pass along the faithful seed. But he failed. He couldn't do it without the hand of God. In fact, as we saw today, that could be said of many fathers of the faith, that they time and time again go to these wells so that they could find a wife to pass along the faithful promise, seeking to be that final link in the chain on the way to fulfillment. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. These four men find their wives at wells in the process of trying to maintain this promise, while the woman at the well has four illegitimate husbands and unintentionally comes to know the promised one as she draws water. The well in Haran could not be opened at high noon because the sheep had not yet been gathered, but Jesus comes to Jacob's well at high noon and tells his disciples, open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. In the same way that God opened the eyes of Hagar, the unloved servant of Abraham, Jesus tells his disciples to open their eyes so they could see the harvest that awaited them. And if you don't think this parallel is cool enough, check this out, because I, I, this just like blew my mind. Whenever Jacob says, it's not time for the animals to be gathered, your Bible probably translates that as uh, animals or cattle or something to that effect. The word literally means the purchased. In Jewish texts, this is really only ever used in the context of livestock, cattle, etc. Uh, so that's the way that our English usually renders it. But we could rightly say that what ends up being said is that until all the purchased are gathered, the stone cannot be rolled away. Do you see the Christ-centered meaning in this? In the Gospel of John, the sheep were being gathered. The stone would soon be rolled away, and from it would emerge the risen Christ, living water who satisfies the Alpha and Omega, who freely gives to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. Do you see how in the same way the church is drawn out of two peoples, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, so also did the lineage of Jacob need to be drawn from two wives so that they could be brought together in Christ? This is our story. This is our gospel. The story of Jacob and Rachel and Leah, it isn't really just a story about sheep, wells, and marriage. It points us toward the time when the sheep would be gathered so the stone could be rolled away. It reminds us to drink deeply, not from the water of Jacob's well, but from the living water of Christ and his gospel. It's a story about the marriage that is to come. The church prepared as a bride for her husband, Christ. This is what I think is hidden in this text. If you are here and you are not a Christian, if you, like the Samaritan woman, find yourself caught up in your sin, unable to escape old habits, uncertain of who you would say Jesus is, I'm begging you, please come talk to one of us. Most of our elders are here this Sunday. They would be happy to stay as long as you need to talk about this. I am available. I can think of no better time to repent and believe the gospel because the stone has been rolled away. Christ is risen. Jesus Christ, our shepherd, is coming to gather his flock. And I want you to be there whenever he does it. Would you pray with me? God, you are immeasurably 